Hey everyone, welcome to a improvised jury rigged episode of Eyes Wide Open. I am going to read to you what Sin wrote for the intro. Here we go. Sin says, I've been clean and sober for 16 years. When I was actively using, I was definitely sober curious. And towards the end, I became obsessed with becoming sober. So even if I didn't use this wording, sober curious, I definitely was and I worked my ass off to understand sobriety and what life was like being sober. So today we're going to ask Jay, who has never been addicted to anything, what sober curious looks like. Now before we get to our questions, I just want to say for the record that everyone has been addicted to something sometime. Even water or food or walking technically are addictions for all intents and purposes to our minds and our bodies. We we get extremely anxious without these things. So I, I have, you know, been addicted, just saying. Yeah, but isn't that like, uh, you can't do anything, you can't shower or brush your teeth? So Sin just said, yeah, but doesn't that make showering a- an addiction? And in my view, yeah, it does. I get super anxious if I go too long without a shower. And I'll have the jitters and the shakes and I'll start getting snippy and moody and I won't be very friendly. Like maybe there's a tribe somewhere who doesn't need showers. They, I don't know, they need to take dust baths or something. So they're not addicted to showers. No, that's fair play. I, I understand what you mean. If you say it like that, it's not just something you need. I, I feel the same about it in the shower. If I have an average in three days, I'm freaking out. Now we're getting to Sin's real questions. Here we go. Okay, Sin said she found the phrase sober curious from a TikToker making a mocktail, but it actually originates from a book by Ruby Warrington called Sober Curious, yada, 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 some giant long title. Her question is, can you explain what this whole sober curious movement is? And yeah, as far as I know, it's just getting curious about every impulse to drink versus mindlessly going along with your past, your habits, your culture, and it can look different for everyone. Not be, I mean, it's just the name, sober curious, makes it sound like they're not really serious about it, or they just want to know about it, so. I believe it parallels, you know, bi-curious, right? Someone who's bi-curious is curious about same-sex engagements, and uh, they'll start Flirting with the idea, dipping into it, asking people about it, considering it, getting involved in it. And so sober curious would be similar. You're starting to explore sobriety as a possibility in your life rather than just going about life on autopilot, drinking on autopilot, and so on. Okay, Sin said she liked the example and she totally gets it. Makes sense. Okay, so then this isn't about horrific deep drug abuse. It's just about alcohol. Sin's next question is, does this apply to drugs as well? And I don't think originally it was meant to. It was founded or started with an alcohol-focused message. But 
like most movements, I'm sure it's going to expand to apply to all drugs or it already has or something like that. Sin's next question was, due to Ruby Warrington's book title, it implies that she believes you'll get blissful sleep and greater focus and yada, yada, yada by becoming sober curious. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's her point. So do you think, do you believe that? Do you think that if you don't drink mind-altering chemicals, that you'll have better sleep and better focus? So Sin followed up with, Jay, do you believe being sober will give you better focus and better sleep and all this good stuff? And that's a great question. The answer might surprise you because I believe that every human being has a certain, I don't want to sound so woo-woo, but like vibe of health. Or they have a certain metabolism. They have a certain immune system. They have a certain focus level and discipline. And all of those things can be tweaked. So if you have a low level of focus or your metabolism is not great at regulating and processing things, or your immune system is depleted or deficient, then whatever substances you put in your body will have a greater effect. Whereas if all of those things are the opposite, if you have very well-functioning systems and a high vibe of health in your body, then the substances you put into you will have a much lesser effect and perhaps even a positive effect uh, depending on how your system has adapted. And so I believe every human has a certain vibe of health. And then I believe every substance has a certain vibe of nutrition or of benefit. And so then when you get the right combo of human being and substance, you get a pretty awesome blend, an awesome combo. So some artists or rock stars do extremely well on substances and they create greatness for the world and they probably wouldn't be who they are or be as impressive as they are or be blessing us all with so much greatness without that particular combo. Their system happens to jive quite well, or they've adapted it to jive quite well with the particular substances and diet that they have. But if someone else were to try that exact same lifestyle, they might find it doesn't work out at all. So this is why it's very important to know yourself and to know what substances work for you and in how much quantities and at what time. This is why it's important to get in tune with your body and your intuition. This is why it's important to practice and why it's important to take care of yourself and adapt to external things, right? Your internal and external should never be looked at separately. They should be looked at as a combo for you individually. And this is why doctors can't just magically help everyone and nail it every time because everyone's individual and they're going to have their own individual responses to things. So I guess the short answer is I don't believe those things are guaranteed just by avoiding alcohol. And in some cases, it might be the opposite, but I don't want to promote drinking alcohol or becoming an alcoholic or anything like that. I want to promote people knowing themselves, knowing their bodies and figuring out what's best for them so that they thrive. Yeah, that's that's for the best. That that would be like me regretting years of, of addiction, which I ne- definitely don't. Uh, if it wasn't for that, I couldn't be where I was today. So. Yeah. I really like So Sin said she liked my answer and it makes sense. And she doesn't regret her years of addiction because they helped her and made her who she is. And she understands why Ruby Warrington, the author, may have 
gotten benefits by ditching alcohol. And she also understands that it might not work that way for everyone. Why is So her next question is, why is alcohol so socially acceptable that we even need to get curious about being sober and explore all this stuff? Like, it's everywhere. It can be tricky to pinpoint why something becomes popular. If people could reverse engineer why something becomes popular, uh, you know, people would be going out and just creating hugely popular things left and right because everybody wants that. They always want to make something popular. Their beer their music, their art, their content. Everybody wants to make something popular. And so popularity itself is a huge topic. And the formula for making something popular is a huge topic. And how did this particular thing, X, Y, or Z, become popular is tricky. But what's not tricky is momentum. When something has momentum, it's, it's there to stay like until that momentum gets stopped. So if we went back to medieval times, alcohol was a fairly cheap, easy thing to produce, right? You can make moonshine in your, in your cottage or something. It's made from natural stuff. It doesn't take crazy amounts of work. You can just kind of let something ferment for a while. And if you're brave, you can drink what's left. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, they, they got to distill it and stuff now. But back in the dark ages, there was some bare bones alcohol stuff going on. And people tried it and it felt good in the short term and they didn't notice or care about the long-term effects and it became part of the culture. And so then their kids were raised on it, right? You would serve your kids alcohol or, or give it to them to cure coughs and stuff. And then their kids are raised on it and the next generation and the next generation. And, and so now it has generational momentum. Ooh, I Just, like that. Generational okay. Sin says she likes the, the phrase generational momentum. And yeah, generational momentum is important. It's why our education system is the way it is, right? Whether the Rockefellers started it to create more workers or it got started some other way, uh, it does have decades and generations of momentum. And so that's why people go to school, get a job, retire, right? That's the thing. Very few people thinking about, think about breaking this cycle. And if you do try to break this cycle, there's a lot of resistance because it has a lot of momentum and culturally... We're all sort of peer pressured to do that just by the collective consciousness, just by the cultural momentum. The same happened for smoking. Everybody was a smoker for a while and there was a lot of cultural momentum for it. And it took lots of campaigning and different changes and propaganda and messaging and so on to convince everyone to stop smoking. And so now very few people smoke compared to the 60s or 70s or whatever. It's very So Sin says, yes, that's correct. Smoking is now very stigmatized, whereas alcohol is not. And I said, yeah, but alcohol could go that route. It could become stigmatized the next decade or whatever. Who knows? So why is one better than the other socially? Good question. So Sin asks, why is alcohol so socially acceptable when it causes some pretty severe downsides, whereas weed is less socially acceptable, even though it has much gentler downsides. And, and again, it can come down to cultural and social and generational momentum. 
right? It's just, that's how it's always been. So that's how it always will be. And so someone makes a big enough stir to change things, change the direction, change the momentum. But it could also just be money. Like the government has found smooth, easy ways to tax alcohol, but not so much for weed. But weed's been becoming legal in more and more places lately because governments are realizing, hey, people are going to smoke this stuff anyways. Let's let's tax it. Let's make money on it. So yeah, everywhere, everywhere that is recreationally legal, the taxes have improved and crimes have decreased. Yeah. So Sin says when she last checked or looked it up, any area that had legalized weed or most areas that had legalized weed tended to have improved taxes and profit for the government and the population was happier because they didn't have to go around the black market to get weed. Well, do you think that that we could ever be on that same socially acceptable tier as alcohol? Or- so Sin asked if I think weed will ever become as socially acceptable as alcohol. And it's like, yeah, probably. Society's just slow, right? For a long time, missionary sex was the only acceptable kind of sex. But then, you know, both jobs and oral became destigmatized, right? Society got around to being like, that's okay. Now you see it in movies and Hollywood and whatever. It's, you know, kids are doing that stuff before anything else, right? And then for a long time, crypto was so like nerdy and weird and nobody got it or wanted to be part of it. And eventually society realized, hey, this has potential. And a bunch of people jumped on it and it's sort of common now. Like not everybody's into it, but if someone says they're into crypto, no one bats an eye. It's like, yeah, okay. It became destigmatized and and acceptable and normal. And so weed is getting more and more legalization in more and more areas. And so, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's like, yeah, whatever. You smoke weed, it's normal. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, Sin says she never thought she'd see the day where she just waltzes into a store and slaps some money down and walks out with weed. So she can see what I'm getting at. One of the things that has annoyed me in my life is how much pressure that I've got to drink socially. So Sin's next question is, you know, she gets pressured to drink alcohol a lot, even though she prefers weed and used to be addicted to painkillers. Like alcohol was never her thing. But for some reason, she faces extreme and frequent peer pressure to have alcohol, and she wants to know why. Uh, Normally, I would ask her, why don't you tell me? But we can't really do that this episode, so I'm just going to tell you what I think. And again, it comes down to generational momentum. Like, Do you know why we have the show Mythbusters? Have you heard of the show Mythbusters? Mythbusters is a show where... These guys look into urban legends, urban myths, common sense cliches that people believe, and they do scientific research and experiments and put put them to the test to see if they can figure out if this commonly used wisdom is real and solid and reliable and true, or is it bullshit that like worked for one person one time and somehow we've embraced it as common knowledge. So it's it's a long running show. Because we have so many myths that need to be busted. There are so many things that people believe that are wrong. And I think a lot of those are about alcohol. 
So for example, you may have heard the phrase, never drink alone, or, oh, dude, you were drinking alone, or it's not cool to drink alone. And so this is just a common cliche that people say. Most people don't even know why they're saying it. If you pin them down and said, give me, I want a real solid reason why you tell people never drink alone. They're like, I don't know, man. That's how I was raised. What? You, you just don't. You just don't drink alone. So you have a whole bunch of people just peer pressuring others and convincing people not to drink alone and trying to force other people into drinking with them. And they don't even know why. So there's one source of peer pressure. Then you get the, the phrase, uh, never trust a man who don't drink. It's like, never trust a man who don't drink? What? I could find like, I could find tribes all over the, over the world, shamans or something who, who, you know, they smoke ayahuasca, but they won't touch alcohol or I don't know, some, some tribe that's never even heard of alcohol. And I, well, I can't trust these people now? What? What do you mean never trust a man who don't drink? Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I could just as easily say never trust a man who don't ride a motorcycle. Like, well, then I've have like, I don't know, a few thousand men I can trust, right? Like it makes zero sense at all. But it's a common cliche, a common phrase, a common wisdom that people live by, many people live by. And they'll they'll say it and they'll teach it to their kids. And so now it's a whole bunch of drinkers hanging around with other drinkers because they know who they can trust. We drink together and we are men and we can do this. And it's like, all right, well, there's another source of peer pressure that makes no sense. It's also kind of similar to the pressure to dance. I don't like to dance that much. I've danced in clubs. I've slow danced. I've danced at proms, whatever, but it's few and far between. I don't really want to do it. I don't seek it out. I love watching dancers, but I want stillness. My body is in motion and being active and producing and typing and creating all the time. I don't want to dance. I want to meditate. Like I want to sit on a deck and drink a beer. No, I... No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I, I prefer stillness. But people pressure me to dance as if like the world will end or something if I don't dance or if I don't dance with them or they can't possibly dance on their own with me as an audience. So these sources of peer pressure for alcohol or dancing rarely have any reasonable basis or practical reason for existing. They've just come around because of social, cultural, and generational momentum, and they're still here. So that's why you get a lot of it. People don't want to drink alone. They, I, It's possible that secretly, deep down, people know alcohol is not good for them, but they can justify it as long as they rope somebody else in. Like, yeah, stealing's bad, but Johnny did it too. You know, we both, we both did it. Drinking's bad, but Sin did it too. So this ain't on me. So Sin said she just had a revelation or an inspiration and it occurred to her that people may get together over alcohol or over a joint because they're hungry for social connection and these habits or activities are a great excuse for social connection, which may be true, right? I'm happy to share a meal with somebody else and I might say yes to the meal if I'm not even hungry just because I want to sit down with that person and share a meal. So I get saying yes to an activity strictly for the social connection that it may provide. But I don't know, you know, if 
if the activity itself is harmful to me or harmful to my body, I don't know if someone's going to convince me to do it. You know, hey, Jay, you want to commit a murder? We'll have a good chat over it. Like while we're while we're bludgeoning somebody. It's like, you know what, dude, if you want to chat, just say so. We don't have to do this. Like, I don't I don't want to murder somebody. <laughs> Well, it's I love that you just compared murder to drinking. <laughs> Sin's laughing because murder and weed are so far apart in terms of degree. She can't believe I compared them. But I'm not comparing them to say they're equal. I'm comparing them to say they're sort of on the same spectrum, the same scale. Like one's a, a deeper, more intense degree, but they're both saying, let's harm ourselves or harm our bodies or do something kind of toxic that could easily result in addiction or easily burn all our funds away. But let's do it anyways for social connection. And it's like, sure, you will get the social connection and it may be worth it for you. But for someone else, it may not. For someone who is an athlete or needs to keep their body in tip-top condition or is an asthmatic or something, it may not be worth the social connection. And to them, for, for a heavy asthmatic, it might be akin to like, self-harm or something. And even even sharing a meal for social connection can be bad. People end up fat that way. I love chatting with my friends, so I just say yes every time they invite me out to a restaurant. Now you're living on fast food. Meanwhile, you're the kind of body or the kind of person who should be vegan or should be fasting, intermittent fasting or something. Like everyone's an individual and maybe you shouldn't be eating the same habits as your friends eat. So saying yes every time to that meal just for the social connection can have some pretty adverse effects. So I get it in principle, but you still need to be careful with it. When I was younger, I had a harder time with that. And actually, that's how I started using or smoking in the first place was I had a friend and they put peer pressure on me. I was 15. And then when I said no, she said, I'm never smoking with you again. And I, I felt compelled to. Sin just said that when she was 15, she had a friend who like, peer pressured her or blackmailed her into smoking with her because when she offered Sin the weed and Sin said no, she got all angry and said, well, then I'm never smoking with you again. As in, we're not friends anymore and I'm taking away the social connection. So you better say yes. And it caused her a lot of problems while she was younger. Then she met me. I taught her some boundary setting and now she can say no to whatever. So hooray. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. My pleasure. Very. It's helped. It's been really life-changing for me. Can, can you actually expand on that a little bit for everybody? Like, Sure. So Sin said that she was crying recently and someone offered her some wine and she turned it down and set a boundary and it went very smoothly. And I said, well, it's good because putting substances in your body when you're in a low or negative emotional state is almost certain to go wrong. If you eat ice cream when you're happy, really, truly happy, your metabolism will be high, your immune system will be good, your nervous system will be regulated, and you are likely to process that ice cream quite well and efficiently and not put on much, if any, weight at all. But if you eat ice cream when you're sad, it's like 10 times as bad. Like your system will not process it well. It will get stored as fat. Uh, it may make you addicted much quicker to the ice cream and you'll want to go back and hit it again. There are a lot of weird hidden effects that happen when you consume a substance with a low emotional state. I'm not saying it's impossible or you can't ever eat ice cream when you're sad. I'm just saying 
there are differences that are worth paying attention to, and most people don't. Um, this relates to sober curiosity because a big focus of the movement is getting in tune with your body, in tune with yourself, and asking deeper questions whenever you have an impulse to drink or consume a substance. So it's not just reach for the bottle on autopilot. It's, do I really need this now? Is this really what I want now? Is this going to benefit me? Would it be better to deal with my emotions first and consume this afterwards? Is there an alternative to drinking this? Could I get a bath or pet my cat or dog to feel better? Right? Questions like this, being curious about every moment or impulse of alcoholic leanings, right? Getting curious about what if I chose being sober now? What if I chose being sober for this moment? And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a good part of the sober curious movement and it's worth practicing. Thank you so much. It's been helpful for me to not reach for substance. That's when I'm, when I'm that emotional and to try to process those things before I reach for that. And you told me that. And that has been super helpful for before I reached. Sin just said that, well, she did her, her classic Sin thing. Like, thank you so much, Jay, for teaching me this. It's made a big difference in my life. And then she used the example of now whenever she feels sad or feels like eating her feelings or smoking her feelings, she stops and checks in with herself first. And it made a big difference. So, hooray. I think if more people do that, they would do something like sober curious and just curious. Yeah, I agree. Uh, She also said that if more people did this, sober curiosity would just become normal. Being aware of what you're consuming would become normal and no one would need a book for it. Sober curious isn't about addiction. It's about consciously drinking alcohol at different events when people just tend to do it from time to time. So why is this different to those who just don't drink at all? So Sin said sober curiosity is all about non-sober people intermingling with sober people and being okay with that. She wanted to know how is that different than people who just don't drink at all. And I'm not really sure. These are all sort of made up definitions of a new movement with new terminology. I think what they're getting at is that there are two kinds of non-drinkers. There are the like the sober Nazis, right? The, the rigid, prickly folks who don't want to drop of alcohol anywhere near them or in the same room as them. And if they're hanging around someone who drinks, they're out and they don't associate with them and so on and so forth. It's a very extreme degree of sobriety. It often feels over the top, but you do you. Whereas sober curiosity is about a non-drinker who is much softer about it, softer in their approach. And maybe they'll have a social drink still, or they're at least comfortable to be around other drinkers without having a heart attack or storming the gates or whatever. And I haven't read the book in depth, but I feel like that's what they're getting at. For, for me, I am very strict when it comes to the heroin stuff, the, the hard drug. I don't spend time with anyone. So I understand why some people go to that extreme. So Sin said, for example, in her life, she has a soft, sober curiosity with alcohol. She's fine to be around it and maybe have a sip or something, even though she doesn't like being peer pressured or doesn't dip into it too much. But with harder drugs like heroin, she's more of the sober Nazi. 
does not want to be anywhere near anything to do with that. So yeah, those are good examples. Uh, you're, you've got both examples inside you. Okay, so do you think that over curiosity is just a way to circumvent or even hide Sin's next question is, do I think that sober curiosity, the term or the movement, is just a way to circumvent or hide the inevitable full-blown alcohol addiction? And I think it can go either way. Like, I'm sure there are sober curious people who aren't headed towards full-blown alcohol addiction, and they're probably going to pull out of it and actually get sober curious and actually follow their curiosity and become sober or become a soft, super soft social drinker or something like once in a while, like at, at, at holiday occasions kind of person, right? I'm sure someone can dive into sober curiosity and end up that way. I don't think they have to inevitably end up at full-blown addiction. At the same time, I'm sure there are plenty of people, plenty of alcoholics who are headed towards heavy alcohol addiction and who will claim to be sober curious because it looks good. People claim to do all sorts of personal development things because claiming those looks really good, but they they do it so that they don't have to change. They do it so everyone will leave them alone and, and they can buy time in conversations or get out of awkward conversations. And I've been guilty of letting people do this to me. They'll say I'm changing or I'm working on this or I'm working on that. And I'll be like, oh, that sounds good. Okay, good for you. Good for you. Excellent. And I'll just leave them alone. But they they don't change. They don't do anything. They're happy because I accepted at face value their claim of growth. And so you'll often find people who will claim growth or claim sober curiosity or claim you know financial wisdom or financial practice or they've turned over a new leaf or they're learning their ways or they've put their mistakes behind them. And sometimes they really have. And sometimes they're just saying it so that they can sneak their way back in or manipulate you or get the result they want or get their agenda fulfilled or whatever. Right? So this is, this is the trick of navigating life. You're going to have the people who do what they say and are trustworthy and reliable and keep their word. And if they say I'm getting sober, they're getting sober right? And then, then you get the people who they're, when they say they're getting sober, they're, they don't mean they're getting sober. They mean I'm getting out of this conversation, leave me alone, or I'm a good person, believe me, or whatever, whatever they're trying to look like, right? They're doing it for looks and for show and to get their own way without actually making major changes in their life. And then you get the people who flip-flop and do both on different subjects. On one subject, they're reliable. On the other subject, they're not. And so then we as human beings, we get the fun game of navigating this. <laughs> like, am I dealing with a, a faker, a liar? Am I dealing with a truth teller, uh, like a word keeper? Am I dealing with someone who's half and a half or 70, 30? And, uh, and so every time someone says they're sober curious or they're sober or they're getting sober or whatever, it's, it's up to you to decide what you're dealing with, who are you dealing with, and what does this really mean? Are they headed towards a full-blown alcohol addiction and they're just like fobbing you off with some excuse? Or are they actually turning their life around? Or are they half and half, like doing one and not the other or, or wh- whatever? The point is, we can't control the entire population of people that we deal with. They, they get the freedom to, to lie whenever they want or not keep their word or make excuses or whatever. 
And oftentimes they're even lying to themselves. So they couldn't even tell you if they were, if they were speaking false or not because they've convinced themselves of something. Uh, so all we can do is refine our intuition and take our lumps and make mistakes. And if you get burned or get somebody wrong, you just got to spot them better next time. So. Oh, okay. And I agree with everything you said. Yay. So Sin says, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous are very firm that their members don't associate with other substance users. Whereas the Sober Curious movement and the book say that they encourage Sober Curious members to interact with others who are not willing, ready, or even planning to get sober. The Sober Curious movement says that it's good to be around these kind of people for one reason or another. Like you, sh- you shouldn't avoid them entirely like the plague. And Sin asks, well, how does that work? How can a non-sober person hang around a sober person and vice versa? It's not that ridiculous. In fact, I think Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous are more ridiculous because it's really tough to avoid every type of a certain human, right? Um, I think like racists do that and it's really hard. You could really just ask yourself, how can gamers hang around non-gamers? Or how could dancers hang around non-dancers? Like, do you have a friend who's a rock climber, but you're not a rock climber? How? How could you possibly hang around this person who's picked up this habit? They could fall off the rock anytime and die. They're promoting a risky lifestyle. Maybe it's going to row off on you. How are you hanging around this rock climber? Like, you just, you just do. You just hang around them. It's not hard. You let them be them. You don't judge. You do your thing. They do their thing. You set your boundaries, keep your discipline, have your integrity. And if you don't want to rock climb, you don't rock climb. You could watch, you could take pictures, but that's it. Like, whatever, I'm not going to do it. It's not rocket science to hang around someone who's not into the exact same things you are. If you're into being sober and they're into drinking, I don't know why you guys can't sit down and have a meal. You'll just have different liquids in your cup. Like if they get super hammered and they're like belligerent and aggressive, maybe you don't hang around them then, but the same would go for rock climbing. If you're hanging around a guy who gets angry at the cliff and he's not pleasant to be around, probably don't hang around him either. But it has nothing to do with the activity. People can hang around whoever. You just got to be secure in who you are and able to set boundaries. And if you feel like you might be tempted, then maybe you shouldn't hang around them. But that's on you. If you're a very temptable person, that's on you, right? I'm not. Fair enough. Like I could, earlier Sin said she has a hard line and she won't hang around heroin users. And I'm like, whatever. I could shake their hand, say, hi, what's up? I mean, if they start behaving super weird, I'm going to like kick them out of my life. But I would do that for anyone in any hobby, in any activity. As long as their heroin isn't causing a problem for anybody in any way that I can see. Maybe they're a rock star and it makes them super creative and they only use it in their studio like miles away at a cottage and they only do it uh, once every six months for, for album creation or something. What do I care if they smoke heroin? Six months later when they're coming out of the album and they're coming down to the city, I'll go, I'll go say hi. A lot of people struggle to live life and get along with others because, because they make things too important. They make money too important. They make drugs too important. They make health too important. They make water, food too important, exercise too important. They make comfort too important. When you make stuff too important or the opposite, if you make things under important and you're like, ah, whatever, I don't need to worry about this, then you get burned. You always get burned. Always. If you make drugs too important, you'll, you'll have trouble navigating a lot of situations or you'll have to keep yourself away from all of Hollywood forever. And it's like, 
why? Like, you can't just swing by Hollywood and say hi. They all use drugs. It's fine. Like, all of these Hollywood people that use drugs, they still hire accountants that don't use drugs. It's, you can, you can still associate with them. But if you place too much importance on the drugs, then all of a sudden you've closed off huge areas of life to you. And your life will get smaller and you'll miss opportunities. And it's, I'm not saying it's the end of the world, but you show me where someone benefited from placing too much importance on a subject or where someone benefited from placing too little importance on a subject. It's not cool. It's not cool to make something too important in your life or in your mind or in your heart or in your emotions. And it's not cool to make something under important in your mind, in your heart and your emotions. So yeah. So for me, I don't put too much importance on any of this stuff. I can hang around anybody. I just vibe it out on the individual and see how I feel. If this person feels okay, fine. If they start acting up, I'm out. And it has nothing to do. I don't, I'm not making notes, taking down notes and putting off check boxes of how many habits they have that I don't like. In fact, when I got together with Sin, there was like a million habits and check boxes that I, that I would normally stay away from, but she felt good to be around. So I just, it's whatever. Now you could argue that didn't go exactly as planned, but I'm, I don't regret any of it. And I know I did the right thing and, and it, it was good. Like, and I would do the same thing if she was a heroin user when we first met, I wouldn't just discount this person. And I don't think people should. When you discount people because they're homeless or because they're prostitutes or because they use drugs, you are discounting an entire human being, a complex human being because of one habit they've ended up with and you don't even know how they ended up with it or what journey they've been through and where that's actually going to lead them. But you place so much importance on this criteria that this is a deal breaker and they have to go. So I've never seen it benefit. But if you can show me otherwise, I'm, I'd love to see it. So Sin's next question is, do I think sober curious is just another term for self-help? And the answer is kind of. The thing about people is they, they all want to have their own identity and they all want to learn from sources that sort of match them and match their identity and suit them. And so if they're passionate about drinking, but not passionate about self-help, they're just kind of hungrily waiting for someone to come along and package self-help in a drinking package. If if I call myself the bimbo whisperer and I coach OnlyFans girls on how to make money, they're all about it. Like, yeah, bimbos. Yeah, tits and ass. Yeah, money for nudes or whatever. They're all about it. But if I tell them I teach financial wisdom and personal development for anyone online, then they're not into it. They don't identify with it. They don't want to learn from that source. But I'm the exact same person with the exact same info and the exact same wisdom and I could help them, but I didn't use the buzzwords they like and the language that they prefer and I didn't speak in concepts and ideas that they resonate with. And so it's all self-help, right? Every human is growing and on a journey, like not all, but stuff like Sober Curious is, is of course self-help of some kind, but it's packaged and presented in language and terms that resonate with a specific tribe. And that's great. That's great business. That's a great way to do things. That's why we have so many awesome things in this world uh, because there's, there's every kind of package and presentation for self-help under the sun. And I'm sure someone will come up with a new one tomorrow. So yeah, I, I think many things are self-help. They just end up with different names. I help people deal with their mindset and their emotional state in League of Legends. I wrote a guide recently and they're like, oh, this is good stuff. Yeah, this is helping me stay calm. And like secretly in my head, I'm like, it's just self-help. It's just meditation. It's just perspective. It's just 
personal development and personal growth. But none of these kids, these league players are going to touch personal development for the next 20, 30 years or whatever. But they will if it's packaged in league terms. So. Okay. Okay. So Sin said, Jay, it's so good you mentioned your league guide because that would be good for anybody who tilts or loses their cool in any situation, uh, assuming they can get past the league terminology. And, you know, I'm grateful. (laughs) Thank you, Sin. And then she gave her conclusion. You guys probably know how it goes by now. Something like, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for helping me understand this so that others can understand this too. Thank you. I appreciate you and your help as always. <laughs> your imitation of me is pretty good. Yeah. Final question is, do you have any final thoughts for our audience? And her final question is, Jay, do you have any final thoughts for our awesome audience? And the answer is yes. I could do a whole episode on addiction because I feel like most of society and experts get it wrong. But, uh, but this episode was about sober curiosity. And to me, sober curiosity is just another word for conscious awareness of our decisions, especially regarding consumption and substances, external substances. That's a way longer term for it. So sober curious sounds punchy and catchy and it resonates with the alcohol crowd. But I believe every human being could use increased conscious awareness regarding their consumption and external substances. I feel like nobody puts enough attention on this stuff. They go through life on autopilot, especially in civilized society, and they're not chewing their food consciously. They're not thinking about their breathing consciously or the air they take in or the environment they live in or the people they hang around. They're not thinking about the food they eat or the liquids they drink or how fast they do it or is it good to do it while watching TV? Is it better to do it in peace at a table? Is it better to do it with a friend? Does it change from time to time? What is my personal balance? What do I need personally? How much substances can I handle personally? Does my ability to process substances change based on my emotional state? Like, are things more toxic and harmful to me when I'm sad? Are things less toxic and less harmful to me when I'm happy, right? This kind of conscious awareness could help so many people in so many ways, extending our lifespans, increasing our fitness and energy levels, raising our inspiration levels and intuition levels, keeping us in touch and in tune with nature, removing our tendencies towards corruption or harm of the earth. It can put us back in touch with the earth. It will show us how to thrive in different ways. This conscious awareness of our consumption and external substances can be a gateway to so many things and people don't see it. Like, ah, I guess so, whatever, man. It's, it's, not, it's too much of a headache. It's too much of a hassle. Do I really have to think about things? Like this is where grace came from back in the like way early Christian times or Jesus times or whatever. You say grace over your food, not because it's some mystical, magical spell, but because it gives you a moment before autopilot. It gives you a conscious time to put your heart and mind upon the food that you are getting. This food came from the earth and it comes from a long chain of food. It, it like came from the farmer, then came to your table and then you cooked it and now utensils and so on. It's good to be consciously aware of this stuff because we're consuming abundance all day long and we're pissing all over it. We're like, whatever, food's nothing. I just get it anywhere from everywhere. That's not a good abundant attitude. And so grace came, came around to help that. Anyways, I'm rambling. My point is conscious awareness of your consumption can help you. Please dig into it. 
practice it even a little bit. I care about you. I want you to win. That's it. Yay. Well, that's why the, our book and the podcast is called I Light Up. Sin just said, yay. Good. Well, thank you. And that's why our book and our podcast is called Eyes Wide Open. Keep rising.